If you have a Bible, turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. As you're turning there, I was reminded of a song this morning. And I just want to recommend it to you. We have not ever sung it here at church before. But it is a song by an artist named Aaron Keys. And it's a song called Sovereign Over Us. I don't intend to say this every week. So I've said it three weeks now in a row. But let me just say it this way. Because I think this really helps us get this all into perspective as we're getting rolling in First and Second Peter. Peter wants Christians to understand how to live their lives as missionaries. Missionaries, we're talking about James and Jasmine going to Japan. They are going there, but they didn't weren't born there. Didn't live most of their lives there. They are not exiles in that sense. We're, we're kicking you out of America, but uh, you're you're strangers in that. They'd be strangers in that land. That's you, Christian. I want you to get it through your head. This is us. We are sojourners in this land, on this earth. This is not our home. Our allegiance does not lie to anything or anyone here on earth. God alone. And so Peter wants us to understand that. And so he's open. You can kind of glance back at the first few verses. He opens this letter by giving Christians these kinds of names, these titles, exiles, chosen. They are set apart. They're called out. And he's, with excitement, he's talking about this hope that's alive. It's not a, it's not a dying hope. It's not a dead hope. It is alive because Jesus was raised. And so this is the first part of your notes this morning. Our hope lives because Jesus lives. There's nothing complicated about that. That's what Peter is saying. Your hope exists because Jesus is still alive. We could, we could just kind of end things there this morning and that should give us plenty of wisdom to go live this week. Our hope exists because Jesus is still alive. We can get excited about that too. And I think this concept is especially important as we move in. We're going to look at verses 6 through 12 today. And these these verses take that kind of shift that I mentioned was coming last week. Up until this point, Peter has been very full of joy, explaining. uh, In fact, he just got finished with this doxology, this wonderful portion of praise But he shifts it now and he connects hope and salvation with something that we are not excited about. And I've mentioned this already a couple times this morning. It's suffering. Now, it may not be something that we enjoy that goes on in our lives, but it probably shouldn't be something that surprises us, should it? Peter discusses all of these things, the Christian's inheritance, the salvation that we have, and he's going to talk more about that, but he connects it with suffering here. But before he, he gets to that, look at the very first part of verse 6. In fact, let's read this verses 6 through 12 together. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes through, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, 
The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that they have na- that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Let's pray. Lord, as, as we just saw, what we're discussing today is something that even angels long to look into. And so, Lord, if heavenly beings created for your glory long to look into this, it ought to be something that we care about deeply too. And so I pray that as we look at inheritance and we look at salvation and we look at joy and suffering and how they're all connected this morning, Lord, may we be better equipped and prepared as your people to weather the storms in our lives that inevitably are coming, sometimes as a result of our own actions and disobedience, but Lord, sometimes just a result of your sovereign hand over us. And so I pray that you would help us to see things for what they are and to respond biblically going forward from today. We thank you for your word and its instruction in our lives. Pray that it would do its work in our hearts today. In Christ's name, amen. So the beginning of verse 6. In this you rejoice. So what's the this that he's referring to here? What's the this that the Christians are supposed to greatly rejoice in? Well, I think it's pointing back to the work and the power of God in the Christian and in the Christian's inheritance. And I think it's pointing most immediately back to the Christian's inheritance in salvation that verse 5 says is ready to be revealed in the last time. So the promise of God's work in a Christian's eternal salvation is what produces great joy. The inexpressible joy, verse 8, isn't just this like fleeting sense of pleasure or happiness though. I, I remember growing up, I grew up in the town of Foley. I didn't actually grow up in town, um, several miles outside of town, up in the hills on some acreage um, with my family. And um, most of you live in a similar situation here. You didn't have next door neighbors that you could just, you know, walk across the yard and shake their hand. In Troy, we lived in a subdivision and I could stand on my deck and shake my neighbor's hand over his fence. Literally. Out here, it's not like that. You know, we're used to driving 15, 20 minutes to get anywhere. Okay, we're, we're used to not seeing our neighbors all the time. For some of us, that's why we moved out here. But be that as it may, um, my family, we're, I'm a family of six growing up. I was a third of four kids, and we hardly ever went out to eat. Kids, I don't know if your parents are mean to you like this, but we hardly ever went out to eat. <laughs> it's expensive, that's why, right? Six people. Uh, so when we would stop at Burger King, which was a favorite of ours, um, well, we would have to order off the dollar menu, but we still were so excited. I, I don't know if this makes us super weird or not, but we were overjoyed to eat out. But you know what happened? Like two hours later, we were hungry again. Because when you're a kid, you're hungry all the time, right, kids? And so it wasn't long, and everybody was hungry again. I think the same sort of phenomenon happens after Christmas, and it may have already settled in for some of you younger people. The toys that you got for Christmas, eh, they kind of lost their luster a little bit. 
They're not quite as exciting as they were when you ripped open the packages on Christmas Eve or whenever you opened them. The thing that you got, you know, maybe you got a new phone. Guess what? The new version's coming out next year. And yours will be outdated. I hate to break that to you. I have to remind myself of that as well. These things are, are just going to keep rolling. You know, our kids have gotten remote-controlled cars for Christmas. Hair and remote-controlled cars don't, don't mix. So they get hair in the wheels and then they go in the trash. Because I'm not, I'm not doing that. That's gross. It's not my hair, okay? So I shouldn't have to do it. <laughs> the thing that you got isn't going to shine like it once did. So what Peter is talking about here, this kind of inexpressible joy, is not the kind of joy that comes from stopping by Burger King once a month or whenever it is, or that new toy that you're going to get, or the new phone, or the new laptop, or whatever it is, the new car, the new outfit. That stuff fades. Peter's, the joy that he's talking about has nothing to do with that. That's not the kind of joy. He has in mind a joy that isn't affected by the newest version of stuff. It's not even affected by the hard experiences in our lives. Look at verse 6 again. It says, Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Friends, trials were an expected part of the Christian experience, but they were never intended to stamp out joy. They cannot stamp out real Christian joy. Because the Christian rejoices in his present and his future blessings. The new birth that we've already talked about, being born again. The hope of a heavenly inheritance. The hope of Jesus Christ, the living hope and the promised protection of God to keep us for that inheritance. In verse 7, Peter goes on to explain the purpose of these trials. Jason already mentioned to the kids, these things have a purpose. Peter's point is that the genuineness of their faith may be proved. That's the purpose. That's what he wants to see happen as a result of these trials. So if you're suffering today, if you're a Christian and you're suffering today, please understand that your suffering is not without a reason. Your pain has purpose. It just may be buried below the surface where we have to dig a little more. In a physical sense, on an earthly level, if you will, the sufferings that Peter's readers were experiencing came from the hands of of men and women who did not like Jesus or did not like Christianity. And so they were from their hands as maybe sometimes physical persecution. Peter references just words that are spoken. That may be more the kind of suffering that we experience as Christians in America today. Is that all we can say about physical or emotional or verbal kind of suffering? That it's just because of sinful people that this sort of thing happens? Difficult times in our lives are a result of sinful people. I don't think our theology should be that surface. I think it should go a little deeper than that. I think it needs to go deep enough to grab hold of divine providence. You guys remember the story of Joseph, right? Flashy robe, jealous brothers. They sell him. They throw him in a pit. Want to leave him for dead, but end up selling him. He goes to prison. He's persecuted. He finally starts to get some authority and gets out of that bad situation and then A woman unjustly accuses him and he's back in prison and he's waiting and he's wandering. And you know what it was? It was all a result of his brothers, right? That's not what he thought. 
Listen to Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. Je, uh, Joseph is finally reunited with his brothers. They have come now to get grain and food because there was a famine and they're coming to him. They don't know it's him. Finally, he's reunited with them and he opens up, he tells them who he is and he says this, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You see what neither Joseph nor his brothers or anybody knew at the time, there was going to be a big famine, several years where there'd be no food gathered and God in his divine providence worked it out in an unusual way for Joseph to be an authority to plan ahead and to be able to provide for many people. That's why he said, so that many people should be kept alive as they are today. But you heard the part, and you've heard this before, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. So were Joseph's brothers to blame for all of his suffering? Kind of, but they weren't alone. God meant it for good. And this is where I think many of us have this, maybe we could call it a crisis of faith. How can I believe in a God that lets this sorts of thing happen? Chances are you've thought that thought. You've asked that question. If you haven't, you might, or you've talked with somebody that has. If God is really there, why would he allow this stuff to happen? It's, it ends up being like this black mark against God because people think, well, I can't imagine that a, God, a real loving God would bring about hardship in my life. But Joseph's knowledge of God was deep enough to believe that he brought him into this, these things into his life for a purpose so that many people might be saved. And Joseph didn't reject it. He didn't just accept it. He actually rejoiced in it. Now, don't get me wrong. Joseph's brothers' intentions were wicked. They were sinful, and they were responsible for them, and there were consequences for those actions. But over and above their actions, God intended good for Joseph and the people. R.C. Sproul says, The hand of God trumps the evil intent of those who wound us. And he uses, in his gracious providence, those varying, various experiences of affliction and pain for his glory and for our ultimate edification. Now, there's a lot more to be said about this in particular, but I just want to boil it down this morning to one thing. Trust. Trust. Did Joseph trust God? In your sufferings, do you trust God? When life doesn't go the way that you wanted it to, do you trust God? Do I trust God when my body doesn't do the same things that it used to be able to do? When things aren't working out like I expected them? At the core, it's this question. Do I trust that God loves me and is working out what's best for me even when my life is hard? That's a question we have to ask. I think the answer should not be found in us, should be found in his word, because it never fails. Peter will soon say, the flower fades, the grass withers, but the word of God stands forever. So the question, do I trust that God loves me even when my life is hard, needs to be answered through his word. Because you know what? If you ask that question to your friends, there's a good chance you're going to end up like Job. If you ask that question and look for the answer in the best-selling self-help book, even in the Christian aisle, you're going to be upset. If you look for that answer, even within your own heart, you're going to lay your head down on your pillow tonight full of disappointment because you don't have the answer for this. We are not capable of having proper answers for this kind of a question because in our suffering, we get blinded to the truth of what God is doing. 
And that's part of the joy of the body of Christ, that we gather around one another and can identify those ways that God is using these difficulties to edify us, to challenge us, to shape and mold us, to use the biblical word, to sanctify us. So what does Peter say is God's intent in these afflictions? Look at verse 7, that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So God proves a Christian's faith in the same way he says that gold is refined by fire. We sang that song this morning, the refiner's fire. You guys have heard this analogy before. You know, you understand this process is you heat gold up. What rises to the surface? The dross or the impurities. And then the refiner scrapes those away and a more pure gold is a result. And if he heats that gold another time, more impurities rise to the surface and more things get scraped away. And the more that you do that, the purer the gold is. So Peter's point in bringing gold into the discussion here is like a comparison to help us understand what God is doing in our trials and sufferings, but also to show how valuable the faith of a Christian is. His faith is tested in the fires of various trials. Peter's, Peter hopes that it comes out on the other side purer than it was before. Could this be what God is doing in your trials? Oftentimes, we don't have that perspective, right? What's the question that we most often ask when we go through hard times? Why? Why, God? I, I thought I was doing what you were telling me to do. Why is this so hard? Why isn't this easier? And we ask this kind of a question. Might I just kind of propose a different question to ask instead of why is this happening? Ask this, Lord, what do you have in mind for me in this trouble? In this season of challenge, what are you trying to teach me? This isn't just some like magic incantation that will fix all of your troubles to do it this way. But it just might be the shift in perspective that it takes that God uses for our faith to continue to grow and start to flourish. Maybe this is how Peter can say that the Christian faith may be found to result in, he says, three things, praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So even and especially in our trials, Look at what faith does. It increases. Purity increases. Godliness increases. Those of you who are active and work out, and, and we understand, you understand, I don't do those things, you understand that in order to build muscle, you have to not break down muscle, but work it, stretch it. And it's painful. But, but it causes you to be stronger on the other side of these things. This is what God is doing with our faith. I think verses 8 and 9, keep moving along, verses 8 and 9 underscore this truth. Though you have not seen him, you love him, Peter says. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. So what's the word that the Bible uses to describe believing without seeing? Faith. It's faith. Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 7 says, we walk by faith and not by sight. Jesus in John chapter 20 verse 29 says, blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. So when we feel like, when you feel like you're being held over the flame, because I know some of your stories, 
I know some of you feel like that even now. You feel like God is holding you over a flame and it's a trial and it's not pleasant. When you feel that way, where are you putting your trust? In yourself to get yourself out of it? In the next paycheck to get out of it? In this friend that will come and console you? Are you trusting in the Lord and his word? When we believe in Jesus, when we believe all of this that Peter is saying, our faith is proved real and genuine. And we rejoice until we receive the end result of that faith, the salvation of our souls, verse 9 says. Let me quote the ESV study Bible notes. I thought these were helpful. Joy is not reserved only for the future when Jesus will be clearly seen at his revelation. Even now, his followers love him believe in him, and rejoice with an inexpressible joy. The end result is eternal salvation, the completion of God's saving work. So again, the depth of the joy that Christians have is not determined by feelings or outward circumstances. It's locked onto Jesus as our living hope. That's where it's settled. The author of Hebrews equates it with an anchor. Some of you have heard the name Richard Wormbrand before. He was a Christian in Romania back in the 1940s, 50s, 60s era. And he was put in prison for his faith. He spent a total of 14 years in prison. Get this, three of those years he spent in complete solitary confinement. In 1964, he was eventually released and later with his wife went on to found the organization that you might have heard of, Voice of the Martyrs. This is a Sort of a humorous quote, but it really reveals what we've been talking about. While he was in prison, he was told, you can't preach to the other prisoners. Like that was a rule that they gave him. This is what he says. It was strictly forbidden to preach to other prisoners. It was understood that whoever was caught doing this would receive a severe beating. A number of us decided to pay the price for the privilege of preaching. (laughs) So we accepted their terms. This was the deal. We preached... And they beat us. We were happy preaching. They were happy beating us. So everyone was happy. (laughs) Such joy in suffering, happiness, in the midst, inexpressible joy, in the midst of heartache and difficulty, that's the kind of hope that is incomprehensible to, for Richard Wormbrand, communist jailers. They did not understand why they would be full of joy to be beaten for preaching. Couldn't get it. Didn't understand. That's the kind of hope, though, in the Christian that baffles doctors when they give you a bad report and you say, thank you, God's in control. It's the kind of faith and hope that baffles coworkers, classmates, friends, family, your next-door neighbor, when they see You, in the midst of suffering, and they see your hope is unbreakable because it's fixed on Jesus. That's what preaches the gospel better than a lot of ways, other ways we could do it. There's a book, in fact, called Evangelism as Exiles. Elliot Clark, he says this, Christians who have their hopes and worldly goods stripped from them in this life seem to have the most to teach us about a lasting hope in the next. They always seem to have the greatest joy, the deepest faith, the most invincible hope. They also seem to be the most likely to proclaim that hope to others. This is another purpose in our pain, that God would be moving us to preach the gospel in the midst of this, 
because it speaks louder than when it's not. Now, it makes logical sense to us. Wealthy people, it, it makes sense for them to have hope. They can pay for doctors, a comfortable life, those sorts of things. That makes sense to us. You know, beautiful people, at least in the world's eyes, they, they have reason to hope. People with power, people with influence, these people we understand have reason to hope, but when hope doesn't make sense, when it, it's not reasonable, when our joy is inexpressible, even in the midst of trials, that's when people open their ears to the truth of what Christians have to say. And I think that's often one of the best springboards for evangelism because our faith moves beyond just merely saying the right things, but to doing the right things, even when it's hard. This brings us to verses 10, 11, and 12, which I think describe in more detail the salvation that Peter's been referencing and the gospel that brings it about. These verses help us understand a little bit about the inspiration process of Scripture and also about the history of salvation through the Bible. Peter's saying the truth about this salvation that he's talking about, it isn't something new that he's made up. He's not just fabricated this kind of a message. It's actually been spoken of and written about long before he or any other apostle came onto the scene. The prophets, he references, they were given divine inspiration to write about things that would come. Oftentimes, many years afterwards, they didn't fully understand, I don't think, what exactly they were saying. They certainly didn't get to see a lot of these things happen in their own lives. They didn't understand them. But they knew it would happen because they were told by the Spirit of God, Christ was going to suffer. It's one of the things that's mentioned by Peter. We really observed this in our Shadows of the Savior series in Advent about Christ's suffering, some of those prophecies. But out of that suffering, what would happen? What would be the result? Glory, truth, the ministry of the prophets, Peter says, and the ministries of the ministry of the apostles were for the Christians that Peter was writing to. He says it's not, they knew it wasn't for them, but for you. It's for us today, 2022. It's for Christians now. But not only did the prophets look into this message, this mystery, this thing, but what else does Peter say? Amazingly, he says even angels long to look into this sort of a thing. Now, we don't have exhaustive teaching in Scripture about what an angel is, what he does, what they are designed for. I think we do have enough to understand that they are separate beings from people created differently. So, you know, no offense to Jimmy Stewart or anything, but angels don't get wings when a bell rings. Um, they don't fall from heaven, none of that stuff. You don't become an angel when you die. It's not what the Bible teaches. Angels are created beings who worship the Lord and serve Him in various ways. Scripture indicates even that angels observe Christians in their lives. A couple references in your notes you can look at on that. Angels don't experience salvation the way that we do. And so these verses from Peter, they tell us that they're interested in salvation. They, they long to look into it. They want to observe these things. They want to see how God's grace impacts a sinner's life. In fact, Jesus talked about this in Luke fifteen ten. He says, there's joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. You've probably heard that verse before. Angels care about what happens here, but no angel is in need of redemption. So the reality of God's saving grace being displayed to a sinner intrigues them. They long to look into it. I don't often quote the New Living Translation, but I appreciate the way 1 Peter 1.12 reads in it. It is all so wonderful that even the angels are eagerly watching these things happen. 
the message, the plan, the story, the thread of redemption down through Scripture. Angels are watching this unfold, and they're amazed. It's incredible to them. R.C. Sproul comments on this, and he says, The angels delight to watch the ministry of Christ unfold in history. They delight in observing the proving of our faith and the progress of our sanctification. Our faith, which is more precious to God than gold, means much to God, so he will put us in a fire to make us pure. That's not how we usually think of the fire, though, is it? It's not a blessing of God to purify us. We feel like it's a punishment. Indeed, there may be times when God uses difficult things to steer us back to the path we need to be on. But Peter's words here are actually meant to encourage the Christian who are experiencing suffering, experiencing trials. When I was seven or eight years old, I went to a friend's house and he had a wood-burning kit. You guys know what I'm talking about? Perfect for seven-year-olds to play with. You can guess what happened to my finger when I was trying to burn wood. I burned my finger. I didn't burn the wood very well, but I burned my finger real good. And the only way that it stopped stinging was to put it in a glass of cold water. As soon as I'd pull it out, it would throb and hurt. I feel like it was on fire. And of course, I, you know, I couldn't do a whole lot with my finger in a cup of water. So their parents gave me some kind of salve for burns. I don't know if it was aloe or what it was, but it helped. It wasn't quite as good as the cold water, but it, it helped. It was, it was all right. At some point, we're going to feel the sting, the pain, the fire of life, but God's word is meant to be that salve that calms us, that covers those wounds and calms us. Peter says, you're grieved by various trials. We feel that way. Some of us even today, if we do feel that way, I hope that Peter's words here are salve for your heart medicine for your soul. And so Peter talks about this salvation and he says, rejoice in it. In this you rejoice. Prophets knew about it and they saw about it, but only in part. They didn't know the full revelation of God's word at that point when they were writing it. The angels still look into this salvation as a source of awe and wonder. And guess what? This incredible salvation is offered to you today because of the work of Jesus Christ. Son of God, on your behalf. He's come not to condemn the world, but to save the world. That includes you, Christian. If you feel like you're suffering in the pain of various trials, Peter claimed that God's plan for your life wouldn't be finished until he had given you praise and glory and honor with Christ at his return. That's coming. Don't lose heart. So if you suffer now with Christ, rejoice. I know that seems like the furthest thing when you're going through a difficult time, when you've lost a loved one, when you've lost your job, when things just are falling apart. It seems so backwards to thank God and rejoice. And yet this is what he calls us to and what he gives us the ability to do through his word and through his spirit. Rejoice even in your sufferings because you are going to share in his glories in the days to come. I want to end this morning with a word from Paul. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Verses 17 and 18. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient or temporal, temporary. But the things that are unseen are eternal. Is it possible 
that the temporary things that we see that are difficult are in fact working behind the scenes, under the surface, if you will, by God for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension. Do we trust God enough to believe this? This is the question that we ask. Let's pray. Lord, this makes me uncomfortable to to think of the difficult times that I have gone through, to look at the possibility of experiencing challenges and trials in the future. It's just, it's not pleasant to think about unless we get a new perspective, unless we begin to see it through the way Paul puts it, two two categories, things that are temporary and things that are eternal. Lord, is the trial that we're enduring temporary? Yeah, it is. Because when we're with you, it won't matter anymore. So Lord, I pray that as every Christian in the room would put their faith in you, that they would say, God, I trust you. This is hard. I don't understand it all, but I choose to trust. Even though I can't see, I believe. I want to walk by faith and not by sight. Or do that work in your people. But Lord, I also pray that you do work in people that don't know you. In people who don't have a guarantee of inheritance waiting. Who don't have a salvation to rejoice in. Lord, they can today. I pray that you would grant them repentance. Faith. Peace with God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Lord, I pray that you would do that work in them today. Lord, it doesn't involve saying a bunch of right words. It involves believing in the right person, and that's believing in Jesus. And so, Lord, I pray that they would set their eyes on Christ and believe today, and that they would be saved. Thank you for your word. Not just gives us a a pattern to copy, Lord, but it gives us truth to live by. May we do that this week. In your name we pray. Amen.